Hello, you're listening to the podcast of Bay Ridge Christian Church. Each Sunday, our aim is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ from the text of the Bible and to catalyze the hearts of our hearers to love and gratitude towards God and all of His creation. We hope you enjoy this teaching, and we pray that you will be encouraged to trust in Jesus today. Today, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Genesis 5, 1 through 3, it'll be up here on the screen. We'll be using the New International Version. And we're going to be talking about the sanctity of human life uh, from this text in the Scripture. Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Hear now the word of our Creator God. This is the written account of Adam's line. When God created man... He made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them man. And when Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. Today, January 22nd, uh, is what is oftentimes referred to as Sanctity of Life Sunday. Uh, a number of presidents have actually declared that by proclamation, but uh, it's not really for that reason that we would talk about it. It is also the, the reason that this particular day was picked. It was on this date in 1973 that the Supreme Court uh, issued the Roe versus Wade decision, which um, legalized abortion across our country. But uh, we don't really talk about politics here at Bay Ridge. It's not something that I preach on. We preach the scripture. So why would I talk about this subject today? Well, the reason is because it's not a political subject. Uh, It's a biblical subject, and it's actually even beyond that. It's a subject that is true for all humans. One does not have to be a Christian to understand the sanctity of human life and its basis. Uh, This is something anyone could be able to grasp if we want to, if we want to understand what human life is. And so... We're going to talk about this today, and I want to really get to this question of, is human life really sacred? And if so, why? What is it about human life that makes it sacred? And we'll kind of tease out some implications. And so we want to look at this particular text and talk about the sanctity of human life. And the fact is, what it is really related to ultimately is the image of God. Now, our text today, Genesis chapter 5, let me say briefly, there's a little phrase here, it's the written account of Adam's line. Uh, The Hebrew word there for, uh, in this phrase, is what's uh, known as toledot, that is the Hebrew word. It's important because there's ten of these in the book of Genesis. They kind of structure the book of Genesis. The first one is in Genesis chapter 2, where it says, this is the account, or these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And it's letting you know these are the important things where we're kind of following the story and this is the second one of these and it's regarding adam and his generations and who is adam and the first thing we're told is that humans are created in the image of god so notice after we're told that this is the toledot the generations of adam we're told when god created man he made him in the likeness of god And then in verse 2, he created them male and female. 
and also in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, because Genesis 5 is clearly referring back to that text, we read, God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over all the things that God had made. And then in verse 27, so God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. So notice in this text, we're told that humanity is created in the image of God. That is what is essential to understand about us. The only time God took a break in, in creation was when he was getting ready to make humanity, and God speaks, and he speaks actually in a poetical form because he is highlighting and he is saying, everything needs to stop, it needs to slow down, this is important, I'm going to make something, but it's not going to be like anything I've made before. It's not going to be like any of the animals, the creatures, the plant life, the planets, the sun, the moon, the stars. It's not even going to be like the angels that I've made before. This thing that I'm going to make now, that I'm going to call man, I'm going to call humanity, this thing is created in my image. And we are told that the image is the very likeness of God. It uses both of those words somewhat interchangeably here. And so that there is something about human beings that we are like God. We are as like God as a created being can possibly be. There is a gulf between that which is not created and that which is created. But when you're on the side of that which is created, we are as much like God as it is possible for a created being to be. And notice here, when we come to Adam's line, we're doing this, this next poem, this generations of, and, and it's an important thing. It goes back and says, okay, but I'm going to root this back in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. So it uses the same phrase. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Quoting back from Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And then saying he created them male and female, which is there specifically in Genesis 1, 27. So the writer is saying, go back and remember in the creation account, the essential thing about humanity is, is the image of God, is the likeness of God. And so when I'm going to recount how we are descended from Adam, that's what is essential. More important than anything else is the image and likeness of God. And only humanity has this likeness, has this image. Now, the image of God in humanity is very complex, and I'm not going to be teaching on that today what it means, because there are spiritual aspects, there are moral aspects, there are relational aspects, there are functional aspects, many, many things that go into it. I've actually taught, I looked it up the other day, uh, there are nine different teachings on the image of God on our church website. So if you hit teachings and go and look under image of God, you can see nine teachings where I've tried to talk about all the various aspects of what it means that we are the image of God. I'm not going to speak about those different aspects today. I just want to say that that's essential to who we are. It is the image of God that is central to humanity. And all creatures are important as the creation of God, but humanity alone is sacred because it is alone the image of God. What we do with other animals, with plants, with the planet itself is important because it is God's creation. But human life is not just important, it's sacred 
because human life alone is the image and the likeness of God. That's not true of anything else. So as there is a gulf between the creator and the created, there is also a gulf between humanity and everything else because we alone bear the image of God. Now, the second thing that our text brings out is that all humans are equally the image of God. To be human is to be the image of God, and to be the image of God is to be human, and there is no further breakdown. Now, why do I say that? Notice here in our text, we are told, first off, that all humans are united in a common nature. That common nature is called man. So notice in verse 1, and this I'm going to have to bring out a little bit of Hebrew here for you, where it says this is the written account of Adam's line. The Hebrew word is Adam. Not too difficult to figure out, right? Adam, where we get Adam. Well, the word when it says God cre- when God created man, that word is Adam. Or he made him in the likeness of God. He created the male and female and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them Adam. And then when we come down to verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years. So all of those are the exact same Hebrew word. Okay? The first man... Adam, Adam is simply named that because that's what we are. Okay? We're not fish. We're not birds. We're not angels. We are Adam. We are mankind. We are humanity. And so we are all man. And by that phrase, it does not mean male because it's going to make that distinction in a minute. It means that we are human. We are all Adam. And this is important because according to the scripture, one of the central things is we are all in Adam. Every one of us are derived from Adam. You can't even understand the gospel apart from understanding this. And we're going to come back to this at the end. But when Jesus comes, what is he called? He is the second Adam. He's the second Adam. Because our problem is we are in the first Adam, And our only solution is to be in the second Adam. But we are all united. You and I are not islands unto ourselves. We are not separate from one another. We share a human nature that is given to us by God, and it comes to us from Adam, the first man, and then from Eve as she is taken out of Adam, and we are all descended from them. Now what this means is, To deny any single human is the image of God is to actually deny that every single human is the image of God. If there is any human being anywhere that is not the image of God and whose life is not sacred, then no human being is the image of God and no one's life is sacred. Okay? This is essential for us to understand. We want to break down and make some lives more the image of God than others. We want to make some lives more sacred than others. That has been our attempt since the fall. But you cannot do it because we are all in Adam. And God has made us and we share a common nature. And so all human beings are united in this common nature. It does not matter who you are, where you live, when you live, you come from Adam all and therefore all equally bear the image of god secondly our text specifies that both male and female are created in the image of god notice this is in 
uh, verse 2, he created them male and female and blessed them. And this is going back to Genesis chapter 1 again, where we were told God made them male and female, and then he blessed them and he gave them dominion over the creation. So God made man, humanity, Adam, as male and female, and together, each of them individually and them together are the image of God. And that means there is nothing unique about the male of the species to make the male more the image than the female. Any idea of that undermines the image of God for all of us. You cannot make such a distinction. Now, in a few weeks, we're going to even see how you come out of this text, and the whole idea of marriage has deep roots in the Trinity and the image of God. Because when God brings Eve to Adam, what does he say? The two shall become one, which is part of the image of God. Our God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one, divine community. And God says, I've made you male and female, and the relational aspect is essential in humanity. And marriage, very specifically, even within those relationships, bears the image of God or at least it ought to. And so male and female are specifically created in God's image. Thirdly, all human beings descended from Adam and Eve are the image of God. Notice how this text brings it out. When it wants to say these are the generations, I'm going to tease this out. In verse 3, he tells us Adam had lived 130 years. He had a son in his own likeness, in his own image. So the idea is, when God made Adam, he said, Adam, you uniquely are my image, you are my likeness. And we might wonder, well, maybe in the fall that is so broken, it's no longer true. But we are told here, after the fall, Adam has a son, and that son bears the image and the likeness. The way that Adam is the image and likeness of God is passed on from Adam to all of his descendants. Therefore, all human beings, right down to the present, are as much the image and likeness of God as Adam and Eve, fresh from the Creator's hand. Nothing reduced in the image of God regarding us. Now note, it's beginning with Seth here, not because Cain and Abel and other children prior to Seth weren't the image of God, but because in the Toledotes you only follow the one line. So it's going to follow Seth, and then one of Seth's children, and then one of those children, and all the way down. But all of Adam's children bear the image and likeness of God. That's the point of the text. It didn't stop with Adam. It didn't stop with the fall. But every human being descended from Adam is image and likeness of God. Every human being alive today is as much like God as a created being can be because they are the image and the likeness of God. And so the key point is the image of God is passed on even after the fall. And so, again, to summarize it, to deny any single human is the image of God is to deny all humans are the image of God. And when you deny humans are the image of God, Katie bar the door. There is chaos baying at the door. Okay? Because what we do when we do that is we then pick and choose whose life 
is valuable. And friends, you and I are not of the wisdom or the ability to do any such thing. Now, what are the implications of this? I want us to kind of think through this text and what it means. Well, there's several implications. Number one is all human life is inherently valuable. If the essence of being human is to be the image of God, if that is true for all humans, if it is true for male and female, if it is true for every descendant of Adam and Eve, then what that means is all human life is inherently valuable. And in fact, humans are of inestimable worth, as much worth as a created being can have, humans are, because we're God's image, not because of something else. The, the moment I became human, I had as much worth as it was possible for me to ever have as a created being. And nothing I could do in the future could possibly add to that worth. The cup of worth was as full as it could be. There was nothing else could be added to that because I was already the image and the likeness of God. And in fact, if you want to think about the story in Genesis, what got Adam and Eve in trouble? They tried to become more like God. They tried to get more worth than they already had by being the image of God. And what that's called is death and destruction. There is no adding to our worth because our worth is the image of God. And it's true of every human being. And so our worth is not dependent on our intelligence. It's not dependent upon our shades of life. It's not dependent upon our ability to contribute to modern society. It's not dependent on anything other than this, that God looks and says, my image, my likeness, as much worth as a created being can have from that and that alone. Now, this runs directly contrary to our utilitarian culture. Our culture says your worth and mine is measured based on our ability to contribute. How much can you be? What, what kind of a cog in the, in the wheel? What part of the machine can you be? How much are you bringing to the table? And then I'll determine how much worth you have. Totally upside down. Totally satanic. Your worth. And my worth is image of God. And whether I can any longer contribute, no matter what my intelligence level, my look, whatever else I bring to the table, it cannot add to my worth. Because my worth is found in being the image of God. And so, this, our culture, because we are utilitarian, here's what we do. We denigrate the unborn. We denigrate the newborn. We denigrate the sick. We denigrate the elderly and run directly contrary to what God's Word says. As we saw a few weeks ago, how you and I treat the weak and the vulnerable reflects how we actually view God. Because they're the image of God. There, and it's not. Otherwise, see, when I, when I give greater value and greater worth to those who can contribute more to me, what I'm saying is what's really important about you is not the image of God. It's what you can give 
me. Because ultimately, after all, I really am kind of the center of the universe. And, and your value is really what you can bring to the table for me. If that doesn't keep you awake at night, you're not listening. That is not the way we want to live. That is not a society we want to live in. Second implication. Human life is valuable from conception to natural death. Conception to natural death. Our human worth begins at the moment we become human, which is conception. We don't become human when we can contribute. If we did, I'm being reminded as I have grandchildren now, they're not contributors to society. In fact, I joke with my grandchildren all the time and say, when are you going to stop playing and get a job? And they tell, Papa, we're kids. We play. Friends, have you ever thought about the fact, especially in our modern culture, you spend the first 20 plus years of your life sucking away resources. And now you spend the last 20 something years of your life sucking away resources. That's how our society looks at which is virtually half of your life. But friend, your, your worth and your value is not determined by that. It's by the image of God. And so it doesn't begin when you begin contributing. It begins at the moment you are conceived. And so scripturally, our identity, our sin nature, our call from God all begin at conception, not at birth. I'm not going to take the time to tease all this out now. I think our video this week, I will probably go through this so you can look at the after hours video. But if you look in Psalm 51.5, David says, my, my problem, my sin nature began at conception. If you look in Psalm 139 that Greg actually read a little while ago, David says, you, you were fashioning me together in the womb. You were putting me together. You were making me who I was in the womb. Jeremiah tells us in Jeremiah 1, 4, and 5 that God said, before you were born, while you were still in the womb, I had a call on your life. You were called to be a prophet, not because I noticed later, hey, this guy might be good at this, but because I put that call on you before you were born in the womb. When Jesus, in the womb of Mary, apparently right after conception, Mary conceives and goes and sees Elizabeth. There's no sign Mary is even pregnant. But when Jesus comes into the room, John the Baptist leaps in Elizabeth's womb, recognizing that's my creator there. Not even known, not even seen, can't even be found by a test, but he is there and he is there in all of his glory because his full humanity is there from the moment of conception that's the God man has just walked into my presence. That is who we are. So there is also, let me say, there is no scientific nor rational place to begin humanity other than conception. If you're ever talking to a friend, just ask him, so is like a two-year-old human? Or what about a one-year-old? How about a child like an hour after birth? An hour before? And just try to get them to back up and come up with a logical spot. It's day 37. That's inane. There is no logical place other than conception. Now, let me give you a quote from one of the great 
deep thinkers of our age, a great theologian who wrote, Should I put this speck down? Horton thought with alarm. If I do, these small persons may come to great harm. I can't put it down, and I won't, after all. A person's a person, no matter how small. Y'all come here because I bring out the deep stuff. Every time I read that to my grandchildren, I think, what an amazing piece of theology. A person is a person, no matter how small. The second, second you were conceived, you were the image of God. And you will never have more worth than you had that second. Now, the other side of this is our worth as God's image also extends until natural death. Not until our time of usefulness. God has planned out our days for us, and we are not to purposely cut them short for ourselves or for others. We're not to do that because to do so says that the image of God is not what's essential. We like to try and speak of quality of life. Here's as much quality as you can have. You're the image of God. No matter who you are, no matter what other abilities you have, you are the image of God. And we do not want to be a society that discards those that we think are weak and vulnerable. And so if you look in Psalm 139.16, again, Greg read that earlier, where, where David says, look, all my days were written out for me in your book. We don't want to go to God and say, well, I scratched a bunch of those off. Because I decided, you know, my quality of life or their quality of life. Grandma was becoming a burden. But that's the kind of culture we live in. The culture of death, not life. For an individual to purposely end a human life after conception or before natural death is a full rejection of God's sovereign plan. It's to say, image of God is not enough. It's to say, I know that I was that person at conception. I know you had a call for me. I know you had a plan, but I know better. And therefore, I will rule. My will be done. That's what it is. Now, the third aspect of this is, we've talked about the beginning and the end of life. Let me say what's in between. All forms of racism and sexism are patently unbiblical and are a full frontal assault upon the image of God. All forms of racism and sexism are patently unbiblical and are a full frontal assault upon the image of God. How many races are there? One, the human race. That, that other idea is a modern conception, and I might point out is a modern conception that was specifically used to try and say certain people, you know, we're all created equal, but some are more equal than others. We're all kind of human, but some of us are more human than others. 
And when you do that, you can turn a human being into a piece of chattel property. When you do that, you can take a human being and you can herd them into a train car and you can shove them off to a place where you kill them in droves. And you can't do that if they're really, truly human. It's always the first domino that falls. Always. The same argument has been used. And interestingly enough, the argument that has always been used to push back and say, no, stop, this is wrong, is always, but I am a man. So notice I've got up here a, a picture of the coin. This is the medallion of the abolitionist movement in England, and it says, am I not a man and a brother? And it was a call when people were saying that the people that were being enslaved in Africa, after all, they're not really human. They're a different race. And the medallion that thankfully many Christians were behind said, no, am I not a man? Am I not your brother? Am I not descended from Adam and Eve like you are? Do, do I not bear the image of God like you do. When a man named Standing Bear, who was a Native American, went before a federal judge in Nebraska for going back to get a child's body who had died in another territory, and he was on trial for that, and he was told, you don't even have standing here because you have to be a person. You're not a person. And Standing Bear stood there and said, look at our hands, different color, but I am a man. God made us both. Same appeal as here. Thankfully, he was heard and it was recognized in their brilliance. Oh, I guess you are actually human. You, you do get to have standing before the court. When we go, this picture in 1968, this is the civil rights movement. This is the Memphis sanitation workers strike in 1968. Who went there to support them? Anybody know? Dr. King. Where Dr. King died. And notice the sign. What was the appeal? I am a man. Jim Crow has tried to reduce my humanity and treat me as if I am something else. I am a man. The first thing that is always done to mistreat, to abuse, and ultimately even to kill another human being is to deny their humanity. To say, you are not the image of God. You are not equal to me because of your sex, because of your race, because of some other way I try to categorize you. And the way back is always the cry, I am a man. I am human. I am like you. It is all rooted in the image of God. So any form of racism is patently unbiblical, a frontal assault on the image of God. The same thing is true of any form of sexism. Men and women are quite clearly distinct. If, if you are a woman who's lived with a man, you can say amen. If you are a man who's lived with a woman, you will say amen. If you're just a man or a woman who's met somebody of the opposite sex, you will say amen. We are distinct from one another, and it's a good thing. It's a good thing. But... With that distinction, we equally bear the image of God. And so all forms of sexism are inherently 
unbiblical and they are fundamentally untrue. Fundamentally untrue. Now what this means is a consistently pro-life stance is strongly against racism and sexism and a consistent anti-racist or anti-sexist stance is inherently pro-life. Now that'll flip some people out if you go out and say that in our culture, but it's true. The only way to try and say I'm against racism but I am not pro-life is to be completely self-contradictory. And the only way to be, uh, say, I am for women's rights and then still try and be pro-abortion is to be inherently contradictory. You really cannot do it. There, there is no logic or rationale behind it. But I want to tell you one of the reasons that this has happened is too often those who have cared for the unborn have not cared as deeply about people between life, uh, between birth and death. And friends, we need to care about injustice everywhere it happens. Because injustice, at its root, is a strike against the image of God. This is a war against God's image everywhere we find it. The enemy always wants to undermine and destroy, and we should be those at the front who say injustice anywhere is injustice everywhere. I do not want to stand by that. I stand for the value of human life from conception to natural death. I will fight no matter who you are for your inherent dignity as a human being. Now, let me go to the last point, and maybe we'll say amen left. Um, we are to love, respect, honor, and care for all human beings, even those who are trapped in various forms of sin and error. But here's the problem. There are people who can't stand what I am saying this morning. They don't like it. And how do I respond to them? Many human beings today deny the image of God. They are trying to find it. There are people working feverishly to find a basis for the inherent value and dignity of human life without bringing God into the equation. Good luck. The wisdom of Einstein is not going to come up with that way. It doesn't exist. Okay? They deny the image of God. There are many today who deny the essential fact that God made us male and female, which is part of our text. And they want to try and jumble all of that up. There are many human beings today who worship false gods or even deny the existence of God. There is no God. And they want to tout that to you and I. But here's the reality. That very person, if I take them and they are rolled into one, don't want to talk about the image of God in humanity, deny the essential fact that God made us male and female, do everything they can to distort and destroy that, and then they deny that God even exists or they worship a different God. That person still bears the image of God. The way it is. And we cannot curse them. We can't do that. Because to curse them is to curse the image of God. Now, not because I say so, but because the Scripture says so. James teases out our text in James chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. And he says this, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father. Oh, come behold the wondrous mystery. 
and we sing it. And then, with it we curse men who have been made in God's image. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. And so we sing worship, and then this afternoon we log on to Facebook. And when someone says something we don't like, we refer to them. I have a friend who is a believer and refers to them as libtards. And what he's saying is, I despise the image of God. That's what he's doing. We can't do that. We can't worship God with our tongue and then turn and curse those made in his image even when they're saying things that are wrong and foolish. We cannot do that. You remember when Paul is struck by the servant of the high priest and he says something and somebody says, can you speak to the high priest that way? See, what I want to say is, yes, he's an idiot. Speak to him that way. But what does Paul say? I didn't know he was the high priest. I'm sorry, brothers. I know the scripture says don't speak evil of the rulers of your people. Do, do we respond that way? Are, are we constrained by realizing this person is the image of God? And that means we must treat even those who attempt to undermine and destroy the very image of God, we have to treat them with respect. We let our arguments be our arguments, not ad hominem attacks on them that denigrate them. Paul tells Timothy this in 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Well, let me tell you, these are some verses I did not like as a young man. Unlike Thomas Jefferson, I wouldn't have cut the miracle stories out of the Bible or been these kind of verses right here. The Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to who? Everyone. Able to teach. Not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance leading them to a knowledge of the truth. So notice, see, we, we want to cut this out and say, well, but it's not talking about people who are undermining biblical truth and they're, they're against Jesus. Yes, it is. They don't know the truth. They need repentance. And they're going to find it if we speak to them gently, respectfully. And if we don't, we are undermining the work of God. Verse 26 and that they will come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. I don't know how much clearer Paul could make it here. He's talking about unbelievers who, this is a shock, but oddly enough, as unbelievers, they are thinking and acting and speaking like, go with me here, unbelievers. It's a shocking thing. And Paul says, if you want to see them escape the trap of the devil, if you want to see them granted repentance, if you want to see them come to life, when they call you an idiot, don't respond in kind. Don't descend to that level. Because ultimately, why Paul's doing this is the same reason James is doing it. That person's the image of God. That's who they are. 
they may be acting foolishly by their very nature they may be that they're by their actions they may be uh denying the image of god in themselves but we i'm sorry that thing keeps popping i don't know what's going on today we can't do that what that means is if we engage in the demeaning dialogue that characterizes much of our cultural discourse today we are actually denying the image of god in the other person we need to not take part in that stuff okay and the overwhelming majority of the discourse i hear going on in our culture right now is demeaning of the image of god overwhelming majority of it and our response just has to be i'm not participating i'm not I'm not getting down to that level. I am not participating in such a thing. You can do that. You can demean the image of God. I will not be guilty of doing that. Now, how do we apply the word? Really simple. We'll get just one question a day, and then we're going to come to the table. The question is, do I believe and act like every human life is sacred? Do I believe the image of God is the basis of worth? When I meet a person, do I think their worth is as high as it can be because they are the image of God, regardless of anything else? Do I know that nothing can add to that basic worth? No matter how athletic they are, how good-looking they are, how talented they are, how intelligent they are, how productive they are, it cannot add to the basic worth because they have as much worth as a created being can have because they bear the image of God. Do I, do I know that? Do I understand that it can extends from conception to natural death? Every stage in between, total worth. Now, I'm asking these questions, and it's important for us because our culture is laboring to undermine these very ideas. We, we want to start our worth sometime later, like afterwards, and we wanna, we wanna, we're bringing it back daily as to how far it extends towards death. We can't participate in that. And... When I say, do I believe and act like every human is sacred, those are kind of beliefs. Now, here's an act. Do my words and actions to others reflect the sanctity of life? Now, that includes when I talk about and have to have sometimes uncomfortable conversations about the fact that abortion's wrong. But can I have that conversation in a way that does not communicate and everybody has the image of God except for you, you swine, because you've disagreed with me. And let's be honest, quite often why I'm really angry is not because you disagree with God, that you have the temerity to disagree with me. I mean, disagreeing with God's one thing, but you're disagreeing with me. I mean, you're stepping on hallowed ground now. I know y'all have never had those thoughts, but bear with me because I've had them, and I've acted that way. And am I willing in acting to be ridiculed or worse. Reed Horton hears a hoot. Am I willing to have every other creature in the jungle say I'm out of my mind and try and strip me down and take it away because I realize a person's a person, no matter how small. 
no matter how old, how weak, whatever struggles they got, a person's a person. In our culture, that alone is going to get you ridiculed. People are going to say terrible things about us. They've been doing it for a long time. And that's okay, because we're just going to stand up for the image of God, wherever it's found. If you were an abolitionist in the days of slavery, is not a popular position. We might hail William Wilberforce now. He spent most of his life being ridiculed. If you were someone standing up to the Nazis with the Jews, not a popular position. In fact, you probably got put on the train yourself. Are we willing to do that? Now, with that, that leads us to the table. And this table reminds us that redemption's work by the God-man. Our problem required the God-man for our solution. Yesterday in church history, we were looking at a thinker named Anselm who asked the question, why the God-man? And his answer was, well, here was our problem. Our sin had offended the honor and worth of God, which is infinite. And so the price that had to be paid was infinite. But the problem was it had been offended by we humans. So a human had to pay it. How can that be? The God-man is the only means of it happening. And so salvation depends on the image of God in humanity. Salvation depends on the second Adam. Salvation depends ultimately on the sanctity of life. And so we come to the table today thanking God he took the sanctity of human life so seriously. If you and I were not the image of God, would God have sacrificed his own son on our behalf? Would not. But because we are, and because God took the sanctity, the sacredness of our life so serious, today we come to the table and we remember it. And so we come to remember the sacrifice of the God-man who bore the image of God perfectly. And we come confessing whatever sin we bring to the table. And I want to be clear. If you are here and you've listened to this and you are either a woman who has had an abortion or you are a man who has talked a woman into having an abortion, confess and receive forgiveness. The sin of abortion is no more the unforgivable sin than any other. It's serious, as is every sin. It's a sin against the image of God, as are virtually every sin. So if we've done that, confess. If we have contemplated work for euthanasia, which is a euphemistic name if there ever was one, Okay? It's not the good death. If we've done that, confess, repent, receive forgiveness. If you're here in the parts where I was talking about racism and sexism, we're very uncomfortable because our thought regarding the image of God has not extended to those areas. Confess and repent. Receive 
forgiveness and the grace and the mercy of God. And if we have been guilty of speech that demeans other humans, repent, confess, receive grace and mercy and forgiveness. For Christ, second Adam, has borne our image and in so doing has borne our sin and has brought us salvation. For what I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, I thank you that you have worked salvation for us. And Lord, as we sang, it is a wondrous mystery. Lord, I thank you that the God-man has come bearing our image, bearing our sin, that we might be forgiven and that we might once more be reformed in the image of God. Father, meet us at this table by your Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As you get the elements, please hold on to them. I encourage you again to consider those possible ways that we may have fallen short and sinned we have, let's confess them before God, receive grace, mercy, and forgiveness. And then I'll lead us taking it together in a few moments. We are confessing, admitting, embracing the fact that we have drawn our humanity from Adam. And Father, that is glorious, for it means we are the very image and likeness of God. Father, because of the fall, it is also a terrible thing. For in Adam, all die. For through the disobedience of the one man, Adam, we all became sinners. But Jesus, as we hold this bread, we glory in the fact that you came not as a disembodied spirit, not as an angel, not some other part of creation, but you came and you became one of us. You are the second Adam. And so we confess that as we were in Adam, that as by the sin of the one, we, the many, were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus Christ, we have been made righteous. And so, Jesus, we thank you this morning for perfectly bearing the image of God and for bringing us out of Adam and into the second Adam, out of death and into life. Thanks be to God for the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Take
Oh, Father, as I read the biblical text, I marvel that Adam and Eve, who were your very image and likeness, the apex of all creation, could look and somehow say they wanted something more. And in striving for that something more, they threw away life. And yet, Father, as I hold this cup, symbolizes the blood of Christ shed for my sins, I'm reminded how often I've made the same choice. That your image and your likeness was not enough. Father, each of us here have our own sin. Whether we have despised unborn life, whether we have despised weak and infirm life, or old life, or life that didn't meet our standards, Father, whether we have despised life in our actions or in our words, Father, we are convicted that what we have actually done is despise the image of God. But Lord, we are grateful that Jesus Christ shed his blood to cleanse us of that very sin. Not only removing the stain and the corruption of Adam's guilt, but the guilt upon guilt upon guilt that we have laid on top of it by our own thoughts, our own words, our own actions. So, Father, we lift this cup this morning, confessing our own sin and crying out, Jesus, Lamb of God, have mercy on us. Take away our sin. Take and drink. Lord, as we go out from this place, I pray that we would be ever conscious that we are the very image of God, And so is every human being we will meet this week. Kingdoms come and go. Civilizations rise and fall. But the person we stand next to in the grocery store tomorrow will live forever. In eternal life or eternal death. Holy Spirit of the living God, I pray that you would take this sacrament we have just taken that you would work grace in us. You would transform us and you would empower us so that this week in a culture and a world that so often despises the very image of God, we would be those who would honor it wherever we encounter it. In a culture that would base worth on anything and everything other than simply being a human being, the image of God, we would stand out distinct and honor that image. And Jesus Christ, as you have brought us back into relationship with the Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would continue to fashion us so that in our words, our thoughts, our deeds, our very character and desires, we would be like our Creator and our Redeemer. Lord, work this in us by your Holy Spirit this week that we would live as the image of God. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.
I encourage you to receive the blessing of your Creator from the book of Psalms. May the Lord, the Maker of heaven and earth, bless you from Zion, for you are the image and likeness of your God. Go forth in His peace and spread His blessing. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.